Okay, so um, today we're going to talk, I guess, about Keats's Odes, uh, which we didn't have that much of a chance to talk about yet, um, and which you will all have read, right? So um, we'll probably get to talk about two or three of them. Um, we talked a little <laughs> bit about two autumn, um, but let's start out by looking at the Ode to Psyche. Um, which is one of his springtime odes. And um, partly it's worth talking about not, um, worth talking about um, because it's a really good example of that the voyeuristic impulse in Keats. That is um, the extent to which what he likes to do, um, what he really likes to do is look at what's going on around him. Look as hard as he can. Um, it's something like what we saw at the, um, in the fall of Hyperion, where he's a witness to the events that he's already described in Hyperion, but when he comes back to write the poem, he writes, um, he writes himself in as a witness who has vouchsafed a sight of the events that he's describing. That's already implicit to some extent in um, Hyperion, but it's really what's going on in the fall of Hyperion. So the Ode to Psyche, um, what, um, do people know, I know some of you actually know the mythology here, do people know what the story about Psyche is, who she is, what the background is? Um, didn't she marry, um, the son of Aphrodite, uh -huh. and um, whose fame, whose name is famously, I don't, it's Cupid. Cupid, yeah, yeah. or then, Eros is yeah, his Eros. adult name, and, where we get erotic. Mm -hmm. And then she couldn't look at him, or she couldn't see him. Well, that wasn't before their marriage. Oh, um, that's when they were. But her having premarital sex. Her sisters told him that he was a monster, and then she crept down to see him, and then she like saw that he was like this like beautiful god. But then Aphrodite got mad at her, and Eros was upset because like she had violated his trust. And then Aphrodite sent her to do a lot of like petty like little tasks, and she had to like go to the underworld. And she had to do all of these things, and then. Um, Zeus declared that like enough was enough, and she and um, gave Eros a potion to give to Psyche to make them live forever. Yeah, so that that's one version of it. That's a, that's and, and close enough to the version Keats is thinking. Of. Basically, the idea is that um, Psyche, um, who's immortal. Um, has a lover, and he comes at night, but um, on the condition that she not light a lamp to see who he is. Um, and so he keeps his identity secret, but then one day she discovers him, um, which is a disaster. Um, but eventually there's a happy ending when she is made a goddess herself. Um, so she's the goddess of the psyche, um, the goddess of the soul. And um, she is um, also represented as a butterfly. Um, that's her um, uh, one of her strong associations. As, as Juno, I don't think Hera 
by the Roman version of Hera Juno is represented by a peacock. Um, she's represented um, by a butterfly, and the soul is like a butterfly flitting around from place to place and thing to thing. So here's the Ode to Psyche. Um, so who's the goddess in line one? No. It's the Ode to? Yeah, so odes often begin with the word O. Um, not because um, the O, um, because not because a, an ode is an O. It's not the noun of O. Um, but nevertheless, they begin with a um, address to um, their subject. So the ode to the West Wind begins. Anyone? Shelley's ode to the West Wind. Oh, okay, good. All right, we can do it this way, sure. Uh, <laughs> oh, what? Almost. A wild west wind. A wild west wind. Um, so here, the title tells you who um, is being addressed here. Um, oh, goddess, hear these tuneless numbers rung by sweet enforcement and remembrance dear, and pardon that thy secrets should be sung even into thine own soft, conscious ear. So um, when I remember you, when I think about you, I have to sing these numbers, this song, this ode, um, because I feel a sweet compulsion to do it, sweet enforcement and also by my memory of what I saw. And pardon me that I am singing your secrets even though I'm only singing them into your own ear. What does inconscient mean? Soft inconscient ear. What do you think the word inconscient means? Like a shell? Yeah. Um, shell whorled like a shell so that the ear is like a shell with all its whorls and, and ridges and so on. Um, again, notice how Keatsian that is, that that's something which feels both hard and visual, the whorls of a shell, here turn into something soft and oral. That is something that you hear um, and something that's soft. And he's singing her secrets into her own ear and then here's the story. Surely I dreamt today. Remember, that's how the fall of Hyperion will begin, with um, fanatics have their dreams, wherewith they weave a paradise for a sect. So here's what happened to me today. Surely I dreamt today. Or did I see the winged psyche with awakened eyes? Did I really see this, or was it a dream? Did I see the winged psyche with awakened eyes? I wandered in the forest thoughtlessly and on the sudden fainting with surprise, so he suddenly sees something, on the sudden fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures couched side by side in deepest grass beneath the whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms where there ran a brooklet scarce espied. So again, do you guys remember the beginning of Hyperion, the vision that Keats then sees in the fall of Hyperion where Saturn is sitting and a stream runs by? Do you remember this? Made voiceless more by reason of his fallen divinity. 
by reason of his lost divinity. So he loves these landscapes with streams running by, barely noticeable, barely visible. He loves bowers, in fact, natural bowers, places. We'll see this again in some of the other odes. But places um, where you have a kind of, um, of retreat, an enclave in nature, um, and um, there are all the natural things in the background. Um, he keeps setting the same scene. So I saw two fair creatures couched side by side. What does couched mean? Sitting. Sorry? Sitting? No. Like, oh. Nope. Um, what were you going to say? Oh. Anyone know what um, couche means in French? Yeah, couché means to go to bed. Um, it means lying. So a couch is called a couch because you can lie on it, not because you can sit on it. Um, it's actually originally a place where you could lie in public, um, sort of a, what we would now call a chaise longue. Um, you could lie down, but it was living room furniture. Um, when um, women give birth, then there's... Um, that um, that's sometimes called couching. That is the the time when um, they prepare to give birth to the time when they then re-enter the world after they've given birth. Um, so yeah. When I read it, I was confused. It, it does he say women said he because they're together and he saw um, Earth's wings, or she's a goddess and she got wings? She's a goddess and she oh, got okay. wings and hence becomes the butterfly. Um, so that's, yeah, so the background here is that she's already a goddess, that this is after the happy ending of the story that Courtney um, uh, went over with us, um, and that um, she's, she is, she and, and Eros are now a happy couple. And so he comes upon them either in a dream or was it with awakened eyes? He doesn't even know. That question, do I sleep or wake? Anyone know where he actually asked that question explicitly? Do I sleep or wake? Okay, it's the end of the O2 Nightingale, and so we'll get to it. Um, Keats is part of, and maybe the least conspicuous part of his synesthesia, of the um, blending and merging of different sensory experiences is when he doesn't know, when he describes himself as not knowing whether something is part of the real world or whether he's asleep. And um, because you could say, you know, when we're sinking into dreams, um, that does feel a little bit synesthetic. That is, we're sinking into a vision. It's sort of a physical experience that we have. We're tired, we're lying down, we're falling asleep. And that feels like a bodily experience. But it's a bodily experience that then puts us in a dream world, which is first of all a visual world, the dream world. Um, if you think about the difference between dream experiences and real life experiences, forgetting the fact that dream experiences are fragmentary and hazy and they don't make logical sense and we don't remember them. All that's true. But even the most vivid of dreams, the right word we use for that is vivid because you don't dream 
except extremely rarely, that something tastes really good or smells really good um, or, or feels really good. Um, there's a kind of sleep anesthesia that lingers within dreams um, so, that the, so that in dreams we tend to be much more visual even than we are in real life where sight is the primary sense, you could argue, that we interact with the world with. Um, but dreams are much more visual than real life is and correspondingly less auditory less um, and has, have less to do with the other senses. Do you, do you guys agree with that? If you can just bring some vivid dream you've had to mind, I think what you're bringing to mind is something you've seen, um, not something you've felt, not really amazing music, dream music that you've heard. People do dream of music, but take Kubla Khan, for example. That's a dream, and it's an intensely visual dream, and he can't remember the music that he heard in the dream. Um, but boy, can he remember what he saw. Um, also with a dulcimer and a vision I once saw. In a vision, yeah. So it's not a damsel with a dulcimer in an auditory hallucination I once heard, <laughs> but in a vision I once saw. So that's just you know um, a way of saying why it is, of understanding why it is, that Keats has this um, description of dreaming that, that in his poetry you will find merging into dreams so crucial. Where have we seen a merging into a dream before in Keats? If you were to have to take an exam for tomorrow, for example, you might want to know the Eva answer. Saint Agnes? Yes. What happens in the Eve of St. Agnes? She falls asleep and then she wakes up and she's not sure if she's dreaming of her love or if she's actually there. Yeah. Actually there. And in the meantime, from his point of view, into her dream, what did he's he do? He melted. He melted. Yeah. Um, so here's something visual, her dream, but he melts into it. So the idea of melting into a dream is synesthetic. Um, again, at the beginning of the fall of Hyperion, um, is this the dream of a poet or a fanatic? It is a dream. Um, but what kind of dream it is um, is the question. In one of the letters, um, I quoted this for you before, and it's also important to Shelley's Two Spirits. Um, Keats remembering Paradise Lost, um, and you guys did read the, the letters in your volume. Do you, okay, so Keats remembering Paradise Lost says of the imagination, um, the imagination may be compared to Adam's dream. He awoke and found it truth. So what's that a reference to in Paradise Lost? Do you remember? I think I mentioned it once. It's not not the part that you read, um, which you are responsible for. Um, that Adam describes <coughs> the creation of Eve. He says, I was alone. Um, I said to God, you know, this is a great paradise you put me in. It's really wonderful. But all the other animals have partners. No other animal is alone. Um, but I am, and it's kind of lonely for me. And God says, well, I'm alone. You don't see me complaining. Um, and Adam says, yeah, but 
you're God. It's okay. You're completely self-sufficient. Um, but I'm not self-sufficient. I need a partner. And God says, well, I just wanted to test you to see whether you could give me a good answer. You're right. I plan to give you a partner. Now I'm going to make you fall asleep. So Adam falls asleep. But in his dream, he sees what's happening. And um, God takes out a rib from Adam's side and forms it into a woman, Eve. And then she goes away. In his dream, he sees her going away. And then he says, I waked to find her or forever to deplore her loss. That is, he forces himself awake to try to find her or forever to deplore her loss. So he's in love with her, and if she's gone, he's going to deplore, he's going to be unhappy forever. That's really important to Paradise Lost because that's what he will have to face if he doesn't eat the apple after Eve has. He's already said, if I lose Eve, I will be sad forever. And then in Book 9 of Paradise Lost, he does lose Eve. She eats the apple, and he has to decide whether to eat the apple or not himself. And we already know that if she's gone, he will be sad forever. So that sets up what happens in Book 9. But at any rate, here in Book 7, he says I, um, that he woke up to find her, I wake to find her, or forever to deplore her loss, when, behold, not far off there she was. So that's what Keats is referring to, that the imagination Keats says in the letter, may be compared to Adam's dream. He dreamt of something, and when he awoke, he found it truth. It, there it really was. So the imagination dreams the truth is essentially what Keats is saying. Um, so if he doesn't know whether he's dreaming, it's partly because the poet's dream might be a dream of the truth, whereas a fanatic's dream isn't. So, he doesn't know whether he's dreaming, but there he saw two fair creatures couched side by side, lying side by side, in deepest grass, beneath the whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms, where there ran a brooklet, scarce espied, mid hushed, cool, rooted flowers, fragrant eyed. Notice the synesthesia there? Cool, rooted. Okay, that makes sense, but generally we think, if you think of the roots, where the roots of a flower are, you don't think cool, you think dark. Now, of course, soil is cool, and it's a beautiful Keatsian phrase, cool-rooted. Um, but it's partly beautiful because of the synesthesia there, because a natural way of thinking of flowers is dark-rooted, not cool-rooted. Um, fragrant-eyed. Why fragrant-eyed? Yeah, which we call the eye. We, call, we talk about the eye of the daisy. Um, but for Keats, it becomes a stronger idea that you can see their fragrance, their fragrant-eyed, blue, silver-white, and budded Tyrian. Um, they lay calm breathing on the bedded grass, that is, the two fair creatures did. Um, they lay calm breathing on the bedded grass. Their arms embraced, and their pinions too. What does pinion mean? It's a word you need to know. To read English poetry. 
you need to know what the word pinion means. The petals? No. No, these are, th these are um, Cupid and Psyche oh. who are embracing. Their arms embrace it and their pinions too. Wings? Wings, yes. Um, pinion, pinion is a word we don't use anymore, but it means wings. So next time you get onto a plane, ask for a pinion seat. Or say, I don't want a pinion seat. <laughs> then they'll arrest you. Um, their arms embrace it and their pinions too. Their lips touched not, but had not bade adieu. So they're embraced together, not only by arms, but their wings are embracing. Um, it's as though they're embracing with more extremities than humans have. Their lips touched not, but had not bade adieu. What does that mean? Say. Like, they're, they haven't kissed and gone away, but they just... Yeah, so their lips are very close to each other. If you say their lips aren't touching, you know, you wouldn't say that about um, <laughs> two people in that classroom over there. Look, they're sitting across the table from each other. Their lips aren't touching. If you say their lips aren't touching, what it means is they're almost touching, right? So their lips touched not, but had not baited you. A Jew to what? What does a Jew mean? Goodbye, Goodbye yeah. Um, so what had they not obeyed, obeyed a Jew to? What wasn't quite over then? Well, the simplest answer is their lips touching. What he's seeing is their lips were just touching. Do you guys see that? Can you feel that? That, that's, um, that to say their lips touched not but had not obeyed a Jew means that their lips are still very close to each other. That they're not touching, but they're almost touching, and they have been touching. Their lips have been touching. Um, and so that's, again, very Keatsian. There's that, that, that the very distance of the voyeur, that is, if you think about voyeurism as a sexual um, attitude, which it is. You know, that's, what, that's why peeping toms get arrested. Um, People like to watch. Some people like to watch. And if you ask, if you try to think what it is about watching, that's why the porn industry is, is um, such a big industry. It's actually apparently um, there's more money in porn movies than in Hollywood in the United States. Um, it's a kind of underground or semi-underground economy, but as um, a film industry, it's a bigger film industry than Hollywood. At least that's what I've been told. Um, so what is it about voyeurism? Well, it's a kind of tension, heightened tension, which um, comes from increasing rather than relieving desire. Um, and that's what it is in Keats, that being apart, watching, but not participating, heightens sexual or erotic tension. Um, in its strongest sense, that's what you get in voyeurism and in porn. Um, but if you ask why it happens, it's that you can ratchet up tension by keeping yourself distant, but not too distant, close enough to see 
but refusing to touch, refusing to participate. And that's what their lips are doing. So he's seeing the same kind of tension that he's feeling. I don't want to say this is pornographic. It isn't. But it's on a continuum with what in its most extreme um, experience you get in pornography. It's on a continuum with voyeurism. So their lips touched not, but had not bid adieu, as if disjoined by soft-handed slumber. So what does that mean? <coughs> disjoined by soft-handed slumber? Yeah, so it's like they're lying side by side. Their lips aren't touching, but certainly aren't saying goodbye. Their lips are very close. Um, as though they had been touching, but were now disjoined from each other because they've fallen asleep. Fallen asleep after watching TV? Do you think? In the early 19th century? Easy question? No. No. So after what? Oh, well, not only kissing. <laughs> oh, man, I just kissed you. Now I've got to go to sleep. Having sex. Good, thank you. <laughs> you guys, it's an English class. You always have to talk about sex. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, disjoined by soft-handed slumber. They've just had sex or recently had sex, or it looks like what the picture he's showing us is a picture of Cupid and Psyche embracing still in one another's arms and wings, asleep, their lips very close to each other. It's obvious what's just happened. In you know, If you saw this as a painting, it would be obvious what it was a painting of. Um, you know, and it would be, you, you could title the painting post-coital slumber, post-coital napping, something like that. So their lips touched not, but had not baited you, as if disjointed by soft-handed slumber. Um, so they've fallen asleep. Why is slumber soft-handed? <laughs> I feel like you don't want to say. It's, I don't think it's a hard question. Why would you, why is that a good? Fall into sleep? Yeah, because just think of, of getting a baby to fall asleep by caressing it and stroking it and making it fall asleep. Um, it's also why people fall asleep after sex is because it's on some kind of continuum or appeals to the same part of the brain, the nervous system, the body. Um, as what gets babies to fall asleep when they're caressed. Um, that is sexual caressing and caressing of a baby. The nervous system responds in something like the same way. It gets calmed. It relaxes. It causes relaxation. Same with massage. Causes relaxation. Um, same with a certain kind of massage. Um, causes relaxation. So now it's slumber itself that's soft-handed. It's not that soft-handedness leads to slumber, but again, you get, do you see that kind of synesthetic merging? So slumber becomes something that caresses you and causes you to fall asleep. It's like whispering secrets, whispering someone's secrets into their own ear. 
slumber which causes sleep is now the thing that's caressing you into sleep. But that's what being caressed into sleep for even, you know, for an infant, for a little baby, that's what it feels like. That the caress is itself the very sleep that it's causing you to fall into. So Keats is taking that idea, that feeling of slumber itself being soft-handed as though now the difference between sleep and sex, the difference between slumber and the person that you are making love with, those differences are also kind of disappearing. They're merging into each other. Um, that's the feeling here that you get in Keats. Um, and that's what he's always doing. So their lips seem as if disjoined, disjointed by soft-handed slumber, and ready still, past kisses to outnumber a tender eye-dawn of Aurorian love. So their lips are ready to do what? Kiss. To kiss again, and to kiss more than they've already kissed when... Well, a tender eye dawn. What do you think eye dawn means? When their eyelids rise. Yes, if they just happen, you know, in the midst of the nap to open their eyes. They're ready to, be, to kiss again. The difference between being asleep and kissing is very, very close. It's as close as their lips are to each other. So eye dawn would be to open their eyes. That's a very famous Keatsian phrase, eye dawn. If, if it's an illusion, if you're reading literature, you know, P.G. Woodhouse, who wrote the Jeeves novels, do you know who he is? Um, do you know who Jeeves is? Have you ever, there's Ask Jeeves, the website? He's, yes, the butler. So he's based on novels by P.G. Woodhouse, stories of Bertie Wooster and Jeeves. Uh, Fry and Laurie did uh, um, BBC and PBS version of that. Do you guys know who... Um, you know who Hugh Laurie is, right, from House? Do you know who Stephen Fry is? So they were a comedy team before they kind of went, to some extent went, or to a large extent went their separate ways. They were a fantastic comedy team. Um, you should just watch them on Netflix. Fry and Laurie is what it's called. Um, and they did um, all the, a lot of the Jeeves stories for um, PBS with... Uh, with um, Hugh Laurie as Bertie Wooster and Stephen Fry as Jeeves. But in the Jeeves novels, they're always alluding to poetry, and they'll say things like, well, sir, I would say that it was the eye-dawn of Aurora in love. And then now you will know that he's referring to the Ode to Psyche. So eye-dawn would mean something like Aurora in love. What does Aurora mean there? Dawn. Yeah, Aurora is the goddess of dawn. Eye-dawn of Aurora in love would be to say something like opening your eyes, and it feels like dawn because the person you love is all you see. And then you're ready to kiss them again. So, so ready still past kisses to outnumber a tender eye-dawn of Aurorian love. So here is Keats looking at these sleeping gods, ready to start kissing if they see each other. He's looking at them, but if their eyes open, they'll see each other and start kissing. The winged boy I knew. So who's the winged boy? Eros, or Cupid, yeah. But who wast thou, O oh, happy, happy dove? 
a rhetorical question because he realizes immediately who she is. His psyche true. That is psyche. Cupid's love. The person that Cupid loves most. Now you have to feel also um, that it's as though she's his psyche as in his mind. His own vision. Not only, although primarily the goddess psyche, but what that would mean to something to Keats is something like his own vision, his own thought, his own mind. And then he addresses Psyche, O oh, latest born and loveliest vision far of all Olympus faded hierarchy. So latest born because she becomes the goddess last and loveliest vision far of all Olympus-faded hierarchy. Why are they a faded hierarchy? Who is, who is the hierarchy of Olympus? Who lives on Mount Olympus? Zeus. Zeus and? Hera. And? Who? Apollo, Apollo and? Aphrodite. Yeah, the gods. It's the place where the Greek gods live, is Mount Olympus, home of the gods. So the, fated hi so the hierarchy of Olympus would be, you can just repeat yourself, Zeus and, and exactly. Um, so these, this was the pagan gods, the gods of Mount Olympus, the Greek gods. And now they're faded, why? Because their time the, has come to an end. Their time has come to an end. Because they belong to the pre-Christian past. They belong to the, the <coughs> time of Greek mythology or of Greek worship. So they go back to 4 or 5 or 6 or 1000 BC. Um, those days are gone. Those are things that Keats feels nostalgia for. That's why he writes in um, On First Looking to Chapman's Homer that he'd often heard of Homer but hadn't read him because he didn't know Greek until he came upon Chapman. And then it was like looking at a new world. But a new world which is an old world, a world that is no longer the world he lives in. He lives in a Christian world. That's why I quoted this for you, but that's why when he read some of his poetry to Wordsworth, the one time they met, um, Wordsworth's remark was, a pretty piece of paganism. That is, yeah, it's nice, it's paganism, it just, you know, it's Greek mythology, it's not the real world of Christianity, but it's pretty. Um, Keats and Shelley preeminently are interested in replacing, or, are, are no, that's wrong, prefer, the stories of, of Greek mythology to the stories of Christianity. Um, but also Keats knows that everything fades. So in the Hyperion poems, the Olympian gods are going to replace the Titans. That's the rhythm where the Olympian gods replace the Titans. That's the coming of young Apollo. But now the Olympian gods have faded too. They're gone, except here's Psyche. He had this dream or this vision. 
and she is the youngest and latest born. So again, think if you think of what he is saying or doing in Hyperion and in the fall of Hyperion, remember who the latest god in the fall of Hyperion is. The youngest of the Olympian gods is who in the fall of Hyperion? Or in Hyperion, rather. The one who is not yet a god. Who's the titan who is still reigning, who has not yet fallen? Hyperion himself. Zeus is the youngest. No, Zeus is already king of the gods. But Hyperion is still the sun god in Hyperion. But he will fall, as the title of the fall of Hyperion tells you. Replaced by? Apollo. Apollo, young Apollo. So who is Apollo in that poem? Apollo, in some sense, is Keats. That is, it's the idea... To quote um, an idea of Wallace Stevens as it's the idea of the youth as the, the new poet, the person whose energy and vision and love and freshness is going to carry him or her to the peak of poetry. It's an embrace of the world. It's a sense of richness and newness. That's what we're getting all the time in Keats. That's why when I have fears that I may cease to be, he says, before my pen has, te- has gleaned my teeming brain, he's full of ideas, full of invention, full of joy in his own power. And that is represented by Apollo, the young god who is going to replace the old titan. And that, what Apollo has that Hyperion doesn't, remember is what? What is Apollo the god of that Hyperion is not the god of? Poetry. Poetry, yeah. So as an image, as an emblem, the idea there, the real life correspondence to that idea, is that old people have no poetry in them that Wordsworth has no poetry in him, that the older generation is a generation without poetry. And you all must have something like this idea. It's a standard idea that you find out you know, that some friend of your parents who's now a successful business person and who's always ranting about politics, oh, I was an English major too. Yeah, I used to love Keats. Um, people lose it. That's our sense of adults. That's what we young people think of adults. Um, is that they? Is that? It's hard to believe they ever had that. How could it be that they ever had that? Well, f- that's what young poets think about old ex-poets, even if those old ex-poets are still writing. We don't feel this so much in America because America, unusually. This is very unusual in the history of poetry in English at any rate. Um, probably less unusual in general, but, but very unusual in, in, in poetry in English. Um, America's great poets have tended to be, at their greatest, have tended to be much older than other English poets. Um, the great American poets have tended to really come into their own um, in middle age and even in old age. And that's generally not true. 
the great romantic poets wrote their great poems before they were 35, um, almost without exception, before they were 35. Wordsworth wrote almost nothing of serious value after the age of 35. And certainly after the age of 40, there are about four Wordsworth poems that are worth reading that he wrote after the age of 40. Byron and Keats, of course, were dead, and Shelley was dead by the time they hit 40. Um, they didn't hit 40 because they were dead. Um, Yeats wrote great poetry um, when he was older. Um, he, he's one of the exceptions to that rule, so is Thomas Hardy. But generally, the feeling of the young poet is that um, those who are older have decayed. Um, that's why Shelley, in the preface to Alaster, you'll recall, quotes Wordsworth against himself. The good die first. He quotes this from the young Wordsworth. The good die first, and those whose hearts are dry as summer's dust burn to the socket. So that idea is that if you outlive your youthful idealism, you turn into Wordsworth. Yeats talked about Wordsworth withering into 80. That is, Wordsworth died at the age of 80, and Yeats wrote with utter contempt of Wordsworth withering into 80 um, and said, you know, what sometimes happens is that the older poet will sometimes drag himself up the stairs into the attic where he was young and poor and perhaps find some stale crust of youth to try to feed himself on. But that you have to take older poets as a warning of what can happen to you if and when you lose your idealism. And that's why, again, in the preface to Alaster, Shelley says that um, someone who dies of 30 at 30 may have lived more, experienced more through their own idealism than someone who lives to be three times that age. And again, he's thinking of Wordsworth. Um, and Shelley died, as you know. He's, he's um, 22 years younger than Wordsworth. Is that what he is? Um, I think that's right. Yeah, he's 22 years younger than Wordsworth. Wordsworth was 22 when Shelley was born. Wordsworth had stopped writing anything good by the time Shelley was bar mitzvahed, which he wasn't. Um, but by the time Shelley was 13, Wordsworth wasn't writing anything or almost anything of any value. And then Wordsworth outlived Shelley by 28 years. So, um, but Shelley would have thought, yeah, those last 28 years of, of Wordsworth's life, or those last 58 years of Wordsworth's life, um, after I was born, I did more in the 29 years I lived than Wordsworth did in the 58 years that he lived after my birth. Um, so that idea of the poet as youth that's a kind of standard idea. It goes all the way back to the Psalms. The idea of the youthful poet. That's what David is compared to Saul, who's a cranky old man. But here's David, the poet who will be king. And for Keats, it's the new god. The poet is or would be 
emblematize. He's not saying, I'm a god, but he's saying, the new god, that's what I like. The new god, that's the god of poetry. So that's Apollo in Hyperion and the fall of Hyperion. And then there's Monita, who is old as can be, memory as old as it can be. But the new poet is a figure of power and energy and idealism. So that, is, that new poet is Apollo in the Hyperion poems, and it's Psyche in the Ode to Psyche. O latest born and loveliest vision, far of all Olympus' faded hierarchy, fairer than Phoebe's sapphire-regioned star, so fairer than the moon, or Vesper, amorous glowworm of the sky, fairer, that is, than Venus is the evening star, fairer than, but, it, but Vesper is, he's specifically not calling her, calling that star Venus. Vesper is another name for the evening star, but that's the evening star not connected to Venus. Um, if you know what Vespers are, um, they're the evening services, because Vesper is a name for the evening star. Fairer than these, though temple thou hast none, so you became a goddess too late ever to have a temple. If you go to Greece, you won't find temples to Psyche. And yet you're fairer than all the older gods who do have temples. Fairer than these, the temple thou hast none, nor altar heaped with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. So you don't have a choir of um, devotes who will make delicious moan. You should feel that as erotic, as sensual, upon the midnight hours. No voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet from chain-swung censer teeming, no shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. So there's never a cult to Psyche. There were never worshippers of Psyche. You came too late. And yet you're the fairest of all the gods. O brightest, though too late for antique vows. So you became a goddess too late. The stories, the mythology of Psyche, it was too late for anyone to believe in her as a real goddess. She was a story that was told after no one believed in the gods anymore. But Keats is going to believe. As an act of poetic imagination, he's going to believe. Oh, brightest though too late for antique vows, too, too late for the fond believing liar. That is, no one is going to write poems to you, hymns to you out of belief. Too late for the time when holy were the haunted forest boughs, holy the air, the water, and the fire. So once all of nature was holy, in the time of polytheism and paganism, everything had its own god or goddess and was holy. But you were born too late for that. Yet even in these days, so far retired from happy pieties, thy loosened fans fluttering among the, among the faint Olympians I see and sing by my own eyes inspired. So I see your wings, your bright wings. Fans there means wings. Thy lucid fans 
fluttering among the faint Olympians. They're all fainted away, but I can see you, and I sing inspired by my own eyes. There's that voyeurism again. I see you, and I'm inspired to song. So let me be thy choir. You have no choir upon the midnight hours, making delicious moans among the midnight hours. Let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours. Now remember the line is no vir- nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. Here he says, so let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours. So what do you think? Is Keats a virgin? Why not? It's modern. It's modern. Okay, good. He certainly seems to know about sex. But the speaker of this poem is a virgin. That is, that's part of the voyeurism, is if I were to have sex, then it would be over. But if I hold back, if I come close but don't touch like those lips, if I watch but don't participate. That gives me maximal sensual intensity. And so the virgins who are making delicious moan upon the midnight hours, why are they making delicious moan? Because they're eroticizing their own virginity, you could say. That's something that happens in Spencer. Um, That is the very idea of virginity becomes an erotic experience. Um, That's a frequent... Um, dynamic in human psychology that you take the pleasure that you might take by um, indulging or consuming something in not indulging and not consuming it. Um, and, And for Keats, that's what sexual pleasure is, is not having sex, at least for the speaker of this poem. It's the almost but not quite experience. And Psyche is standing for that for him. So if you need a virgin choir, let me be thy choir. And that's a way of saying, and maintain my virginity, but in a highly eroticized way. So let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours. Let me be thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet from swinged censors, censor teeming. Notice that he is going to be all those things. He says, you don't have any of those. You have no virgin choir. You have no voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet from chain-swung censors teeming, no shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat, a pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. So let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours. Thy voice, let me be thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet from swinged censor teeming, thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat of pale mouth prophet dreaming. Pale mouth, by the way, total synesthetic phrase. Only Keats would ever talk about someone being pale mouthed. But notice that he's saying, I don't want to be your prophet. I want to be the heat of the body of the dreaming, pale-mouthed prophet. I want to distribute myself into all these things. That's part of his synesthesia. It's not that I want to sing about you. I want to be all these things. I want to morph into all these things. 
Then he says, okay, I'll consolidate. Yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind. So you were too late for temples. But I will build a fane. What does fane mean? Anyone know? F-A-N-E? It means temple. So, yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind. So I'll build your temple in my mind in an untrodden region where no one goes, where maybe I haven't gone. Um, You know what the most famous use of the word untrodden in English poetry is? Not Kublai Khan. No, no. Untrodden ways. Yes, yes. Who? She dwelt among untrodden ways. Beside the springs of Dove, made whom there were none to praise and very few to love. It's one of the Lucy poems by Wordsworth. Okay. Good. So. Wordsworth writes about Lucy. He's writing about Psyche. Yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind where branched thoughts, new-grown with pleasant pain. Again, pleasant pain. Very Keatsian. Pleasant pain. That's why the speaker, at least, is maintaining his virginity. Pleasant pain. Instead of pines shall murmur in the wind. My thoughts will be like trees in my mind which shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around shall those dark clustered trees fledge the wild rigid mountains steep by steep. So those, my thoughts which will be like trees will go far, far around in this landscape in my mind and fledge the wild rigid mountains steep by steep um, fledge there means something like fringe, um, be like the new wings of a bird, but on but as new feathers in a bird, but um, growing on the mountainside, so they're trees, and there by zephyrs, that is winds, streams, and birds, and bees, the moss-lane dryads shall be lulled to sleep. So the dryads are gods of trees, right? Um, and moss lane means that they will be um, laid, laid down in moss. The moss lane dryads shall be lulled to sleep. And in the midst of this wide quietness, again, feel the key, that's such a Keatsian phrase just in sound, wide quietness. You hear the why, why, wide quietness. You can feel how that is a wide quietness, those two words. And in the midst of this wide quietness, a rosy sanctuary will I dress with a wreathed trellis of a working brain. So I'll make a sanctuary for you of roses, a trellis um, from my working brain with buds (coughs) and bells and stars without a name with all the gardener fancy air could feign, who breeding flowers will never breed the same. So everything that the gardener fancier imagination in my mind 
could come up with of flowers, of imaginary flowers. And when fancy breeds a flower, when I imagine a non-existent flower, that only exists once, the one time that I've imagined it. But fancy keeps coming up with flowers. Do people know what an anthology is? Literally? So an anthology is a collection of poems, right? Um, do you know what the anthos in anthology means? Ology means a discourse about, as in um, geology, which is discourse or talk about or study of the earth, geos. Um, anthology, anthos, you know what anthem means? Flower. An anthology is a collection of flowers. All the best poems. Each one is like a flower. So an anthology is like a bouquet <coughs> of poems. So here are all these flowers that fancy, that imagination breeds, but that will never come back again. But I'll fill this temple to you in my mind with all these imaginary flowers, with all the gardener fancy air could feign, who breeding flowers will never breed the same and there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win. So I'm going to build this for you, a bright torch and a casement, ope at night to let the warm love in. So in my temple, there will be the place where your bed will be with the... People know what a casement is? Anyone? I pointed one out to you in the other room. Oh, the window. Yeah. Mm. Good. Yeah, it's a window with a kind of um, set into a wall. Um, <coughs> so remember, it's the, the moon through the casement windows throws what? Heat. Yeah, soft jewels upon Madeline's breast um, through the stained glass window. Yeah, so the casement will be open because that's how Psyche came to see, I mean how Cupid came to see Psyche, is she would leave the window open at night and he would come in through it. So this is what he'll build for her to let the warm love in. That will be in my mind for you, he says. And the warm love, if you think about it, leave the casement open to let the warm love in. Love is an atmosphere. It's like warm, a warm summer breeze coming in to the room. And that will all be in his mind. Um, so it's a beautiful poem about um, a, an intensity which is building because it's holding back. And it's, built, it's holding back because he gives himself entirely to vision, to looking, and to the synesthesia that vision makes possible. He sees warmth. He sees fragrance. He sees all these things, and he's immersed in them somehow and immersed in them in, in his own mind. But that immersion isn't something like um, resolution. It's not um, something like, okay, now he's having the sexual experience and then it's over. Um, he's just building up all this freshness and novelty. Okay, let's look at a very different, but at the same time very similar, 
ode. We'll finish the course with this, which is the ode um, to a nightingale, um, which is written a little bit after the ode to Psyche. Um, and we'll have to go through it a little bit faster because we don't have much time. Um, but again, notice it begins in a sense of intoxication. You get that over and over in Keats. Um, when he drinks at the beginning of the fall of Hyperion, he has a dream vision. In the Ode to Psyche, he's not sure if he's dreaming or he's awake. Here he feels melancholy, my heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I have drunk. So he's feeling some kind of melancholy, um, very similar to the beginning of the Ode to Melancholy, written within, I believe, within a couple of weeks of this one. My heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock I had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past and leafy wards had sunk as though I'd drunk some, I don't know, laudanum like Coleridge before writing Kubelkan. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot. Who's the thy there? O to a... So who's the thy? Who's he addressing? Yes. Easy questions, guys. Nightingale. So he says, I feel melancholy. My heart is aching. Um, I'm both drowsy and numb, but also melancholy. And why? Not through envy of thy happy lot. That's, it's not that I envy you, but being too happy in thine happiness. I hear your beautiful song, and I'm just so happy as to feel pain. I'm happy to the brink of pain in your happiness. Again, notice that it's the separation. It's the holding back. It's your happy. And I'm even, I'm too happy in your happiness. And that causes my heart to, to ache. That thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, remember the dryads in the Ode to Psyche, that thou light-winged dryad of the trees, so here you are the spirit of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows, numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. So I hear you somewhere singing of summer, and I'm so happy to hear this, that it causes me melancholy and pain. Oh, for a draft of vintage... So I wish that I could have some wine over a draft of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth. Remember the cool-rooted flowers. Over some wine cooled for a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Over a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true the blushful hippocrene. Hippocrene is the um, stream on that the muses drunk from or gave people to drink on Mount Helicon. If only I could drink that. You're singing of summer. If only I could drink this. You have full-throated ease. You just sing away. 
only I could drink this, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim, if I had a beaker of that juice, that drink, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink, if I could only drink that, what could I do? I could leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. So he wants to fade into, melt into the dim forest where the nightingale is, where he, from which he can hear the nightingale's song. That's what he would like. If I could drink this, not just hear your song, but drink this beaker and then fade away with you into the forest dim, like melting into a dream. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. If only I could forget what you have never known, you who live among the leaves of the forest. Namely, the experiences of human life, the weariness, the fever, and the fret here, where men sit and hear each other groan. So that's human life. People sitting around hearing each other groan. Where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs. So a place of old age where palsied old age is shaking before it dies. As for youth, where youth grows pale and specter thin and dies. Where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. So that's a description of human life. Beauty fades, love fades, people grow old, youth dies, thinking is full of sorrow and despair. If only I could fade away. And he thinks about it, away, away, for I will fly to thee not charioted by Bacchus and his pards. So what does it mean to be charioted by Bacchus and his pards? Drunk. Drunk, yeah. I'll get to you not by drinking wine, as I had just hoped for, oh, for a draft of vintage from the South, but I have a different way of coming to you, not by drinking myself into intoxication, but on the viewless wings of poesy. So I'll come to you on the wings you can't even see of poetry. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, even though I can't quite or I'm having trouble, my brain is too dull to fly with poesy, but still I will. Already with thee. So he feels he's with the nightingale. Tender is the night. That would make a good title for something. Already with thee. Tender is the night. And haply the queen moon is on her throne. So he's entered the imaginative wor world of the nightingale in his own mind. Haply the queen moon is on her throne. Why haply? Because he doesn't know if she's on her throne or not. The night is tender. Again, notice the synesthesia there. No one in history before Keats would call night tender. And perhaps... The queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays, but he doesn't know why not, because here there is no light where he is in his mind, in 
the landscape where he hears the nightingale. Here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. So he's deep in this bower of trees, virtuous glooms, glooms made by the green, by the greenery around him and winding mossy waves. And the breezes blow some light into that. How do breezes blow light? Literally what it means is the leaves are, are being shaken a little bit by the wind, so they're glimmerings of light from outside. But again, it feels synesthetic. That is, that it's as though light is being carried like odors into the bower where he's sitting. And he says, I cannot see what flowers are at my feet. Now remember that Wordsworth could very much see one flower at his feet in the Intimations Ode. Do you remember the line? There's a tree of many, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is gone the visionary gleam? Where is it now? the glory and the dream. So it's as though Keats is absolutely denying that. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness I guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. So I'm guessing at all the flowers here. I smell them, I can't see them. So remember all the flowers that the gardener of the gardener fancy feigns who breeding flowers will never breed the same in the Ode to Psyche. Here, flowers everywhere that he's guessing at. The grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk-rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. So that's this dark, rich darkness that he's guessing at and describing. And then he says, darkling, I listen. So here I am listening to you. Darkling is a strange and wonderful adjective that Keats is getting from Milton, who says in Paradise Lost, do you remember? No, but I was going to say um, like that the previous stanza with all the flowers, uh -huh. it, like it reminded me of like um, Paradise Lost when they were having sex. Yeah, yeah, in their bower. Yeah. Good, yeah, very good. And it's also in Paradise Lost that Milton, in his blindness, he too can't see, he's blind, compares himself to a nightingale who, he says, sings darkling and in shadiest covert hid, tunes her nocturnal note. So that's what Milton, who's blind, can hear, how the nightingale sings darkling. So Keats is remembering that as he says, darkling, I listen. And for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. So he, now he wants to melt into death the way one might melt into a dream. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I've been half in love with easeful death, 
called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. That's how he wants to die, that death would just take into the air my quiet breath. Remember the wide quietness of the Ode to Psyche. Remember um, that he stops in When I Fear That I May Cease to Be and stands upon the brink of this wide world to stand alone and think to love and fame to nothingness do think. He wants just to gradually fade away. That's what he's already said, to fade away with thee into the forest dim. Um, Beckett's great short story, Dante and the Lobster, um, the first and best story in his um, first book, More Pricks Than Kicks, um, ends with the main character discovering that he's picked up a lobster for his aunt. She says, on your way home from your Italian lesson, can you stop and get go to, at the fishmongers and get, get the lobster that I ordered? So he picks up the lobster and bring, he carries it around all day and then he brings it home and gives it to her and it moves. He had no idea that it was alive. He says, it's alive! And she says, well, of course it is. And he says, what are you going to do with that? And she says, Boil the beast. And he can't believe that she's going to now take this thing that he had no idea was alive and boil it. And he just thinks the thought, take into the air my quiet breath. And that's from this poem. Um, the story goes on in another paragraph. It's an amazing story. Um, so I called upon death to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die. So that would be the maximal synesthetic richness somehow, to fade away into death richly. To cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. So to hear you sing as I died in such an ecstasy. But then... Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, because I couldn't hear you singing if I died. To thy high requiem become a sod, I would just become a piece of earth. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down, so the bird is somehow immortal. The voice I hear this passing night, this night just passing away, was heard in ancient days. Oh, it's water. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth. When sick for her home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. So, she may have heard this in the book of Ruth, the song of the nightingale. The same that oft times hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. So he's imagining now being in some kind of fantasy world. Magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. So it's a casement. Yes, good. He loves these <coughs> images. K 
casements, what you can see through them. You could almost think of Hopper paintings here. If Hopper, hi, can you give us oh, five so more minutes? Sorry. That's okay. If Hopper um, were were um, doing Game of Thrones landscapes. That's what you would get here. Magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. But as soon as he writes the word, he's brought back to himself. Forlorn! The very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Yeah, he is forlorn. He'd imagined a fairy land forlorn, but he realized, yeah, forlorn, that's me. Adieu! The fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do. Deceiving elf. So he is saying adieu, unlike the lips of who? Yes, he does say adieu to the nightingale, to his vision, to his image. Fancy doesn't do as what, she, what she's supposed to do. She's a deceptive elf. But if she's an elf, she also somehow belongs to fairyland, which is the land of the elfin. Explicitly so. He's thinking of Spencer as the fairy queen, which takes place in fairyland. And the people who live in fairyland, the humans who live there, or the human-like creatures who live there, are, are the elfin people. So the fancy cannot cheat so well as she's famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades. So the nightingale song is also a anthem, which means flower. flower. Good. So the nightingale is fading away. He's not fading away with it, but it is fading away. Adieu, adieu, the plain of anthem, fa plain of anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision? Or a waking dream, fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? So it's gone, the nightingale. Um, the image is gone. It's over. Okay, we didn't get a chance to do Ode on a Grecian Urn. You should read it. It's all of a piece. All the great odes are of a piece. And, you know, take your time. Study for the exam. You have lots of time. Um, almost 20 hours. Um, get a little sleep if you can. And I will see you tomorrow.